The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 14, The Progressives, Part 3. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Welcome back, and thank you for listening. Please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for the email list there. I've also put some resources up about the elections of 1908 and 1912 that you might find interesting. Now, if you're into the social media thing, you can follow me on Twitter at American HisCast. I also, as uh, I think I've already mentioned, but I broke down and created a Facebook page. So you can like the page and we can have discussions there. You can answer any questions or comments that you might have. So go check that out. My only requirement is that folks behave themselves. I don't have the time or the desire to police the page. So please, let's keep it civil. Now, if you want to help the show out, there are a couple of ways to do so. First, you can enter Amazon through the links on the website. If you go to resources, you'll see some of the books that I used to create the episodes. Just click on those links and you'll be taken to Amazon. Any purchases that you make that qualify will allow Jeff Bezos to send us a few pennies and it costs you absolutely nothing. So everybody wins. Now, if you would like to have access to the bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended, you can head over to the website, click on the Patreon button down near the bottom. And for as little as $5 a month, you'll have access to that series, plus transcripts of the shows, bibliographies, and even a bonus episode every now and then on a controversial topic. All right, so enough of that. Today, we are talking about the presidency of William Howard Taft, but of course, first we have the song of the week, which is You Won't Do Any Business If You Haven't Got a Band by George M. Cohen. And as always, it comes to us courtesy of the Internet Archive. We'll see you in just a bit. Charlie Froman left the town starring Isabella Brown in a new Augustus Thomas play. Took the truth to Hazelnut, way down in Connecticut, just to break it in for old Broadway. When the train arrived with all the manager who ran the hall, met them at the depot with a frown. Said he, if he put out his hand, I hear you haven't got a band. The folks expect a street parade in town. Roman laughed and bowed his head. Local manager, he said, you won't do any business if you haven't got a band. The folks expect a street parade and uniforms to grand. So the whole profession will may sound funny, but it's just the thing that'll get the money when you play an old New England. Okay, so last time we talked about Theodore Roosevelt and the Panic of 1907. Today we pick up with William Howard Taft and the election of 1908. Teddy had said he'd not run for office again, and... Of course, he eventually regretted that promise, but he held to it. Now, Roosevelt, unsurprisingly, looked around to see just who he could find to succeed him. And he finally settled on William Howard Taft, the Secretary of War and a man with whom he had been friends for over a decade. Taft ran against Democrat William Jennings Bryan, who was running for the third time in 12 years. And again, just as in the other two instances, Bryan lost. In the Electoral College, the tally was 321 to 162. And there were two other candidates, the Socialist Party candidate Eugene Debs and the Prohibition Party candidate, 
Now, they received just under a fraction of the popular vote and had no impact at all. Taft was Roosevelt's hand-picked successor, and he was now president. Now, I should mention right away that things didn't go as Roosevelt had perhaps hoped they would. Taft immediately moved to show he was his own man, not just Teddy's puppet. The two men, although they had been friends, couldn't have been more different. The former president was full of energy and had a fiery temper. He courted the press, and he knew how to use the bully pulpit, as he termed it, to great effect. However, after almost eight years of Teddy, many felt it was time for a different type of leader. As Doris Kearns Goodwin notes in her book, The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism, Taft agreed with this assessment. He referred to the Roosevelt terms as a great crusade. But now it was time to make the expanded powers of the federal government permanent. However, let's not underestimate Taft as a progressive or a trust buster. He brought 90 lawsuits against trusts during his time in office, twice the number Roosevelt had done. In 1911, the case United States versus American Tobacco Company saw the Supreme Court order the company to reorganize based on the rule of reason doctrine, but did not order it dissolved. The main thing to understand about this case is that it ended up impairing the government's antitrust activities. In 1911, the court ordered the dissolution of Standard Oil Company. Now, in this case, the court saw it as a combination of restraint of trade and violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. So while there might have been a setback in the former case, I think we see that Taft scored a major victory, a feather in his cap, so to speak, when Standard Oil was broken up. Now, Goodwin notes in her book that Teddy and his allies were shocked that Taft had seemingly allied himself with more conservative elements in the Republican Party and Congress. However, I'm not sure this is a fair assessment. Um, for example, some might say that Taft outdid Roosevelt on the topic of conservation. His administration established the Bureau of Mines to control mineral resources, and it ended up rescuing millions of acres of western coal lands from exploitation. Taft also protected water power sites from private development. Now, other progressive legislation passed under Taft included the Mann-Elkins and the creation of the Postal Savings Bank. The former put telegraph, telephone, and cable corporations under the jurisdiction of the Interstate Commerce Commission. The latter authorized the Post Office Department to receive savings deposits from individuals and pay up to 2% interest per year. This, if you remember, had been a major populist idea. Now, in the end, the progressive movement was divided over numerous issues. For example, some supported Southern segregation, while others ignored it. Some advocated expanding popular participation in government while others called for greater reliance on professional and technical experts to make government more efficient. I think part of the problem, at least for Taft, is that he was not Theodore Roosevelt. The biggest problem, however, was the Payne-Aldrich Tariff of 1909. Now, This was the most important cause of the split in the Republican Party in 1912, or at least in my estimation. Now, Just some background on the tariff. This had long been a plank in the Republican Party. They had often advocated for and passed high tariff rates, Progressives, on the other hand, had been trying to reduce the tariff. Taft's campaign had promised to deal with the tariff issue. The House passed a moderately reduced tariff bill with an inheritance tax provision, but the Senate tacked on hundreds of upward tariff revisions. In the end, the tariff was about 37%, and Taft signed the bill. Thus, he was seen as betraying his campaign promises and alienated progressives. He later even vetoed attempts to lower the tariff. Another problem, perhaps we could say another nail in the coffin, was the Ballinger-Pinchot controversy of 1910. 
This overshadowed Taft's conservation at success. Secretary of the Interior Ballinger opened public lands in Wyoming, Montana, and Alaska to development, but he did not share uh, Gifford Pinchot's desire to reduce mining there. Ballinger was sharply criticized by Pinchot, the chief of the Agriculture Department's Division of Forestry, and a, so a strong TR supporter. Taft ended up dismissing Pinchot for subordination. Now, a storm of protest arose for, from conservationists and Roosevelt's friends. A congressional committee ended up exonerating Pinchot. This led to a growing split between TR and his hand-picked successor. Although, to his credit, he, Roosevelt, said nothing about the issues upon his return in 1910 from his tour of Africa and Europe. However, and this is of course no surprise, Teddy couldn't be quiet for long. In a speech in Owatomi, Kansas, TR introduced his New Nationalism Doctrine, which shocked the Old Guard Republicans. He urged the federal government to increase its power to remedy economic and social ills. His ideas included the following, regulation of large companies, tariff reform, graduated income and inheritance taxes, currency reform, the sale of public lands only in small parcels to true settlers, labor reform, strict accounting of campaign funds, and initiative referendum and recall. Now, Republicans in the 1910 midterm elections lost badly. For the first time in the 20th century, the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. The final straw in the Taft-Roosevelt relationship came when, in 1911, Taft passed an antitrust suit against U.S. Steel Corporation. Roosevelt was infuriated as he had been involved in helping J.P. Morgan, the owner, acquire the Tennessee Coal and Oil Company in 1907, the basis for the lawsuit. Now, the split between the two men reflected the split in the party, with the old guard supporting Taft and the progressive wing supporting Theodore Roosevelt. The nomination went to Taft, although Roosevelt had a clear majority amongst the Republican voters. Progressives left the GOP to form a third party, TR's Bull Moose Party. Now, this brings us to the election of 1912. The Democrats nominated Woodrow Wilson, the governor of New Jersey. His platform was antitrust legislation, monetary changes, and tariff reductions. Now, like Teddy, Wilson had a name for his program. He called it the New Freedom. It favored trust busting, small enterprise, entrepreneurship, and a return to a free competitive economy without monopoly. Also, it focused on strong states' rights. Similar to TR, Wilson preferred a more active government role in economic and social affairs, but he differed in strategy. He rejected a stronger role for government in human affairs, as he believed social issues were states' issues. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Progressive Republican Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party. The convention enthusiastically nominated Theodore Roosevelt, <laughs> believe it or not. It was made up of mostly cultured middle-class people, journalists, social workers, settlement house workers, and young lawyers. He, of course, wanted to promote his new nationalism. He spoke of continuing to consolidate trusts and labor unions, paralleled by the growth of powerful regulatory agencies in Washington, with the goal of having more efficient government. Oddly enough, even though Roosevelt lost, this became the quintessential progressive platform, and it set the agenda for the next 50 years. As with Wilson, Theodore Roosevelt favored an active government role in economic affairs, but favored both trusts and regulation. However, in contrast to Wilson, TR believed government should play a larger role in human affairs. Of course, the GOP nominated Taft, who did no campaigning, against something that was not unusual for the time period. As a matter of fact, 
Taft did the majority of the campaigning for Roosevelt in 1904. Anyway, in the end, Wilson defeated Roosevelt and Taft in a landslide, 435 to 88 for Roosevelt and only 8 for Taft. However, it should be noted, Wilson only earned 41% of the popular vote. Democrats, however, won a majority in Congress for the next six years. Roosevelt's split from the Republican Party fatally wounded the GOP, giving Wilson the victory. And one of the interesting things about this election, the Socialist Party nominated Eugene Debs, and he garnered almost a million votes, or about 6% of the total. This represented the height of the American Socialist Movement and a doubling of the votes they had received in 1908. A growing number of voters saw the Socialists as the last alternative to the corrupt two-party system. Furthermore, we need to remember that, at the end of the day, the Socialists were a part of the progressive movement, even if they weren't accepted as such by most progressives. One thing to keep in mind, the party was not Marxist in its orientation, and it welcomed socialists of all stripes. Its main demand was government ownership of the railroads and utilities. They also called for more efficient government, better housing, factory inspections, and recreational facilities for all Americans. Now, if I may offer some criticism, and since this is my show, I can, the progressives and the socialists all called for more efficient government. We had decades of progressive leadership in the United States. Heck, most of the 20th century presidents from both parties were progressive. We had Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson. Hoover, as you will see, was fairly progressive. FDR was definitely progressive, as was Truman. Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, all progressive. Some perhaps more than others. If you look at Nixon, same thing. He was actually quite progressive, especially if you compare him to, say, Reagan. Although, we'll talk about that maybe some other time. Um, the same goes for Carter. Reagan, uh, again, really not so much, but he also talked about streamlining and making government, guess what, more efficient. The problem isn't that they haven't tried hard enough to make it more efficient. At the end of the day, the problem is the money belongs to no one. A company is efficient because the money belongs to the company. They have economic incentives to be efficient. Government, however, has no incentive. If they need more money, they can either just print it up or raise taxes. And when I was in the military, you had this thing uh, where you had to use all of your funding for the fiscal year or the budget would be cut the next year by whatever you didn't use. So if you, let's say you saved 10% of your budget from this year, your next year you were going to lose 10%. So there's no incentive to save it. So even if you don't need anything, you spent, or in this case, wasted the money. It was insane. Anyway, the socialists were supported by the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World a radical and diverse group of militant unionists and socialists uh, who advocated strikes and sabotage over politics. The leaders included William Hayward of the Western Federation of Mines and Daniel DeLeon. They wanted to organize all workers under one big union, as Terence Powderly had tried to do with the Knights of Labor. However, the radicalism of the IWW ended up hurting the broader socialist cause in the United States. So the question to ask, why did the Progressive Republican Party fail? Theodore Roosevelt was extremely popular. So again, why the failure? In a similar manner to the Republican Party, or the Reform Party, I should say, in the 1990s, it was fatally centered around one leader. Theodore Roosevelt in this case, and in the case of the Reform Party, it was centered around H. Ross Perot. The party elected few candidates to state and local offices and had no patronage to give followers. Without that patronage, the party cannot succeed. Finally, the Bull Moose Party might have failed, 
but it did have an impact insofar as it spurred Wilsonian Democrats to enact their, the Bull Moose Party's, progressive ideas. And this is typical of third parties in America. They often fail to garner much support and often win few, if any, electoral votes. However, their ideals, their program, will get picked up by one of the two major parties. So this brings us to another one of the towering figures of American politics in the 20th century, President Woodrow Wilson. Love him or hate him, Wilson's program, especially his foreign policy, sometimes referred to as Wilsonianism, plays a part in American diplomacy even down to today. We could do an entire series of episodes on Wilson, but I don't want to do that, so I'm just going to talk about six different aspects of his time as president. Now, first, let's discuss his background. Born in Virginia, he was the first president since Zachary Taylor to come from one of the seceded southern states. He was highly educated, being a professor of political science and the president of Princeton University. Wilson believed Congress should play a dynamic role in government, placing him right in line with someone like Theodore Roosevelt. He believed the government's responsibility was to pass good laws and the court should enforce those laws. In a vein similar to T.R., he was successful as a governor and president in bypassing legislators and appealing directly to the people. However, he was not willing to go as far as Roosevelt in government activism. Without a doubt, Wilson was a white supremacist and did not support efforts to improve rights for African Americans. Finally, while I've painted a picture of a president who was successful and quite astute politically, he did have one major weakness. His moral righteousness often meant he was uncompromising, not exactly a quality that one needs when you're in politics. Secondly, Wilson came into office with a clear plan of what he wanted to do. This is in contrast to many, if not most, presidents. For the first four years, he was able to pass through Congress um, the most progressive package of legislation since perhaps Lincoln's presidency, maybe even since Alexander Hamilton's tenure during the presidency of George Washington. And when I say progressive, I mean activist or positive le- positivist legislation, but not positivist as in it's necessarily good. Furthermore, he attacked what he termed the triple wall of privilege, the tariff, the banks, and the trusts. I don't know if I've explained the tariff as much as I should. It had been, since the days of the old Whig Party, part and parcel of both the Whig and then later the Republican Party platforms. The tariff was a tax levied on all imported products. It was meant to do two things. Number one, raise money for the federal government and, at the same time, protect and promote American industry. However, it hurt the consumer. As I mentioned earlier, the tariff was, under Taft, averaging 37%. Thus, at any, any item that was made outside of the United States cost an additional 37%. The consumer was being hurt by this. Imagine your iPhone today. It's made in China and then it's sold here in the United States for about $1,000. Now, if the tariff were in place today, that phone would cost $1,370. Let's then say that the ABC phone company made phones in the United States. Those phones would have no tariff on them and would likely cost $1,370 or just under it, let's say 1350. The consumer is hurt because he or she's out that extra 350 or 370 if they chose the iPhone, which they could use to purchase other goods or services and make their lives that much better. Now, speaking of tariffs, in 1913, and in an unprecedented move, Wilson called Congress into special session. Now remember, Congress did not meet year-round like it does today. The president went to Congress and read his message in person rather than having the clerk do it as had been customary since the days of Thomas Jefferson. The issue was the Underwood-Simmons tariff. 
The provision of the bill substantially reduced the tariff from the previous level of 37% on average down to 29%. He then went directly to the American people to demand that their senators pass the bill. He also called for and received a graduated income tax under the authority granted to the government by the recently ratified 16th Amendment to the Constitution. This was a landmark provision, as taxes based on income had been unconstitutional prior to this. Congress passed a rate of 1% on incomes over $4,000, 7% on incomes over $500,000. By 1917, federal revenue from the income tax exceeded tariff revenues, and the gap has widened ever since. Certainly, this is due to the fact that tariff rates have come down significantly. Today, for example, the average is about 2%. Now, the fourth aspect of Wilson's domestic program was the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. This created the Federal Reserve System. As I mentioned before, the nation's existing national banking system, enacted during the Civil War, had supposedly shown its weaknesses during the Panic of 1907 due to the inelasticity of the money supply. The story goes that monetary reserves were concentrated in New York and a few other large urban areas and could not be mobilized in times of financial stress to other areas that were depressed. Wilson appeared dramatically for a second time in Congress to push for a sweeping reform of the banking system. What did the program he called for entail? He endorsed democratic proposals for a centralized bank run by the federal government. He also endorsed ownership of the regional banks by private banks, a proposal by the Republicans. It was the most significant economic legislation between the Civil War and the New Deal. Now, Some credit it with carrying the U.S. through the financial crises of World War I and argue that it's established a solid foundation in a new economic age. However, and significantly, it helped to bring on the Great Depression. Furthermore, since the creation of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. dollar has lost 98% of its value. This is because the Fed was empowered to issue paper money, Federal Reserve notes. The money you carry in your pocket, at least if you're carrying American paper currency, is fiat currency. It's not backed up by gold or silver, contrary to what some people still think. Thus, if you look at it, you'll see the statement, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Instead, these notes are backed up by treasury securities, which are used to monetize the debt. Now, the fifth item on the Wilson agenda was his attack on the trusts. Early in 1914, Wilson again went to Congress to appeal for the regulation of trusts. Thus, we get the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914. Its provisions, it empowered a presidential appointed commission to monitor industries in interstate commerce, for example, meatpackers. It also could end unfair trade practices, such as unlawful competition. What does that even mean? Um, false advertising, mislabeling of products, and bribery through its power to issue cease and desist orders. Now, additionally, there was the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914. The purpose of this act was to strengthen the Sherman Antitrust Act by increasing the list of unfair business practices, including price discrimination and interlocking directorates. Now, the interlocking directorates provision was not enforced and was eventually dropped. It exempted labor and agricultural organizations from antitrust prosecution while explicitly legalizing strikes and peaceful picketing. The American Federation of Labor leader, uh, Samuel Gompers, held the act as the Magna Carta of Labor, even if he was privately disappointed with the lack of a guarantee for collective bargaining. The provision was weak because it did not explicitly identify legal union activity, but this was because Wilson refused to go any further. By 1917, 
um, AFL membership grew to more than 3 million people. By 1910, or in 1910, I should say, it had only been about 1.5 million, down from its height in 1904 of 2 million people. Okay. Finally, uh, some of the other progressive reforms enacted during Wilson's presidency, he embraced parts of Roosevelt's new nationalism ideas to attract progressives. He appointed Louis Brandeis, the people's lawyer, to the Supreme Court. Now, Brandeis was the first Jewish American appointed to the court. He also had the Federal Farm Loan Act of 1916. This provided low-interest credit for farmers, a populist idea. Another one was the Child Labor Act of 1916, which restricted child labor on products in interstate commerce. And the Adamson Act of 1916, which established an eight-hour day for all employees on trains in interstate commerce with extra pay for overtime and a maximum of 16-hour shifts. Okay, that's it for now. Um, our next episode, we're going to look at women and African Americans and how they fared in the progressive agenda, as well as the darker side of progressivism. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. Thank you.